Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hi, this is Keith Law. Welcome to episode 52 of The Keith Law Show. I'm going to be joined today by Sports Illustrated national writer Stephanie Epstein. We're going to talk about several recent pieces she wrote, one on Kim Ng, a couple of pieces on the Astros, and we're going to talk quite a bit about having the yips, the thing that must not be named. A couple of administrative things first. It is March 29th as I write this. On Tuesday, March 30th, my annual predictions column will run on The Athletic and on the app for subscribers. I predict the standings, the actual win-loss records for one-loss records for all 30 teams with at least one sentence, usually quite a bit more. I wrote more this year on what I think of each of the teams and give postseason predictions and give awards predictions. And it's all for fun and you're going to get mad anyway. I know you are. Don't lie to me. You do it every year. Also, on the even more exciting front, my second book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves, where I bring concepts from behavioral economics and cognitive psychology together with good baseball stories, is coming out in paperback in just eight days, April 6th. You can pre-order it anywhere you buy books. If you have an independent bookstore near you, please give them a call to pre-order it. Those stores are still suffering due to the pandemic, and they could really use your help. If you don't have one, you can also go to bookshop.org. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any place you might buy books online. It is available everywhere. It's coming out on April 6th in paperback from HarperCollins. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by Stephanie Epstein. She is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. If her name is familiar at all to you, she's broken or written a number of really pretty significant stories, I would say, over the last two years, including the story of a bit of sexual harassment that went on in the Astros clubhouse in the wake of the during the playoffs a couple of years ago. And we'll talk about that and some of the more recent stories she's written. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So first, I want to talk, you've written so many good pieces just over the last couple of weeks alone. Um, One thing I wanted to talk about is you wrote about Kim Ng being the first female GM of an MLB team. Really, I believe she's the first female GM of any major men's sports team uh, in the United States, uh, in the U.S. Pro League, at least. Um, Would love to know, and she's been, you know, I think, understandably not given a ton of interviews, even though I'm sure she's getting inundated with requests, but... You know, how did that come to pass and what you know, what do you see or what does she maybe she see, I guess, really, is the impact potentially of her taking on this role, being the first, being essentially a pioneer in this role? Yeah, I think she has been a pioneer in most of the roles that she's had. So in in one sense, this is a new feeling, but in maybe a larger sense, it's very familiar. Um, almost every job she's ever had, she's been the first woman and the first East Asian, a person of East Asian descent to do it. And so that is, um, I think she, I think she really has an understanding of what, uh, of what this means because she's done it so many times. Um, and 
you are right. They have been inundated with requests. Uh, I mean, her life has been very crazy. I think ever since this announcement, she, she actually, the, I was talking to, uh, I think it was Dan Halem of MLB. This didn't make it into the story, but when he, the Marlins weren't exactly sure how to get in touch with her, uh, or not, not how to get in touch with her rather, but like what the rules were for, for interviewing somebody who worked at central baseball. And so Mm -hmm. they called Dan Halem and said, what's like, what's the process here? I think this was Jeter. And he said, you know, you can just call her. And so he called, he spoke to her and let her know that this call would be coming. And the first thing she said was, please don't tell anyone. Because it had just been, I mean, she'd done a dozen of these things and her name always gets out and everyone in her life knows that she's interviewing and then she doesn't get the job and everyone in her life knows that she doesn't get the job. And I mean, think about how weird that would be for a regular person if everybody in your life and in in your family's life, I mean, everyone knows like your job hunt and your failures. It's very strange. So she really tried to keep, to keep things quiet uh, until the announcement. And so it, the end result was that a lot of people in her life didn't know that she was even interviewing for this until the Marlins announced that they had hired her. After the first couple of times she was interviewed, at least, uh, I I would always get the sense that she would get interviews for to basically fulfill baseball's Rooney rule. Not, not that it's written, not that there's a strict requirement, but if you don't interview a person from an underrepresented minority group for a usually for a director level position or above, you get a call from Major League Baseball. And it started to look to me at least like that's what she was. She was the maybe one of the most useful people to call for that, which is you know gross. I'm not defending it, but that's basically how it happened, right? And you you talk about that in the story too and how it even colored the reaction she had when the Marlins did call. Yeah, it, it that was something she said to me was, you know, always a bridesmaid that she sort of knew a lot of the time that this probably wasn't on the up and up, but she said also she didn't really want to, you know, she, you don't want to feel like a fool when you get in there. So you have to prepare as if this is a real interview. And for her, that means several weeks of 15 hours a day locked in her office, going through the team's farm system, every one of its coaches. I mean, truly every tr- calling everybody she knows in the game, trying to get scouting reports and everybody trying to really understand each of these teams uh, shutting out her real job because she doesn't have to, you know, 15 hour days, you don't have time to do your actual job. So everyone at your actual job knows you're working on this. It's a ton of work. And so I was kind of like, well, why did you keep, you know, when you can tell it's not going to be a real interview, why would you say yes to this? And she said, because she felt a responsibility to keep saying yes, because it kept her name in sort of the owner, the owners could keep hearing the idea that a woman was involved in these hunts and it kept that as a possibility that a woman could be hired and she sort of felt like if she had just said you know what I'm all set thank you that maybe that dream would have died a little bit and her husband said to me too that if there are you know there's there's Gene Afterman there's uh, Raquel Ferreira there are other women in the game at her level or close to it but there are not there's sort of a gap before you hit the next group and the next group are really impressive, and there are a lot of them comparatively, but there's not, there aren't very many other women who are close to being a GM candidate at this stage. And so he said she thought it might, he thought it might have been easier for her to, um, to sort of turn down some of those interviews if there had been a wave coming closely behind her. But because it was, she knew it was going to be years before anybody else was really qualified, she felt like she kind of had, she owed it to all of these women to keep to keep putting herself out there, which 
sounds exhausting. It's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. Reading about, you just got into some of this too, but reading about how much she felt like she had to prepare for these interviews and also some of the, what she says in your article, which folks can find on SI.com. It's wonderful. Where they also talk, she also talks about just feeling like every day she had to prove that she belonged there, that a woman could do the job. It reminded me of uh, a great podcast called The Hidden Brain. They, uh, they had a uh, former WNBA player, Medina Slace, on talking about sort of not realizing as a young black woman when racism was impacting her, like how referees called game, called games she was involved in, or how other teams reacted to her, and that her sort of unknowing attitude was just, well, I just have to be twice as good as everybody else, obviously. And it reminded me of the same thing. That's Kim is obviously much more aware of these implicit, maybe sometimes explicit biases that she faced, but you know, it's, it, it sort of t- makes sense to me what you're just saying too. Like, hopefully if she breaks down, she has broken down some of these doors, maybe that next wave of women, and I agree with you, there's a bit of a time gap here until that next group has the experience that is expected of many male candidates, at least, um, assuming the bar isn't higher for these women, but that by, she, hopefully she's, one of the last ones who last women who has to do this, who has to work twice as hard or five times as hard. Because if you talk to people who know her, that's who she was. She just had to work. She worked harder than everybody else and just assumed she had to. And I, I guess my hope in this is regardless of what happens with the Marlins, that that barrier is it, if it's not eliminated, because maybe that's too optimistic, but it's at least reduced for the next woman or the next group of women who come up for interviews at the GM level or even the level right below them. Yeah, I've talked to women in baseball, um, just sort of in general. I worked on it right after uh, Kim Ang was hired. I, I wrote a story about what that hiring meant to a lot of the other women in baseball. And I've sort of, just over the course of working on other stories, I've been in touch with some of them. And one thing I've heard from a lot of them and that I, I heard also from Kim herself was this idea that a lot of, there are, you know, there are many structural barriers that continue to be in place, even as somebody hurdles over them, but there are some that you can just knock down. And so like logistically, can she be in the clubhouse is a thing that she faced everywhere she went. And like, can, you know, the, like there's not a uniform for this, for some of these coaches, there's, there's not a uniform that fits you or all sort of like, there's not a women's bathroom nearby, you know, stuff that, that sounds stupid, but actually is a huge quality of life issue. And so one of the things that I know a lot of these women think about is when it, when it feels like a lot is think about what a gift you are giving to the women who come behind you, that at least that small issue is not going to be there anymore because they figured out where the bathroom is. Now they know that you're allowed in the clubhouse. They've figured out what size uniforms fit women there. So there's still, you know, you're still gonna have to deal with all kinds of individual interactions, but there were some small things that they can take pride in knowing that they have eliminated those barriers for the next people who come after them. And I think that can be when it all feels like a lot, sometimes that can be really rewarding to know that you're doing it, that these people will see a direct positive impact from what you've So done. I mentioned earlier the piece you wrote on the Astros a couple of years ago, and it was at least the, the article that first brought your work to my attention. So I was remiss in not seeing your stuff before then, certainly. But it was a, a very high impact piece also. And for listeners who don't remember, it was when former Astros exec Brandon Taubman, uh, in the wake of Roberto Osuna doing something, I just want to pretend he doesn't exist, but in the wake of doing something big, he decided to 
scream at a reporter, a woman reporter in the clubhouse that he was so bleeping glad that we got Osuna. And you wrote an article for SI that reported on what actually happened. And then you, the team, team executives came out and tried to discredit you, claimed that you had it wrong and came after you personally. Uh, you weathered that extremely well too. And I would love to hear from you to as a woman working in an industry that is, I think, still not really great to women on the media side, let alone on the front office side, you know, what was it like to report on that and then have to face that criticism, which I, I don't know if you expected it. I was shocked. I was shocked that their first reaction was just to deny everything, even though there were multiple people who had seen it. There wasn't really much doubt that this had actually happened. Yeah, I was I was very surprised. Um, I did not expect... I actually see the statement originally because I wasn't on their uh, PR li- email list, I guess. So uh, I was, it was, you know, during the World Series. So I was out of dinner with some other writers and people pointed it out to me. Um, I was surprised, I guess, mostly because I had given them a chance to comment uh, ahead of time. And so I had sort of expected whatever negotiating was going to happen would be done ahead of time rather than, than be told afterward that I, um, that I had made it up, but then it was also, it, I mean, the whole thing was very strange. Cause like I hadn't made it up. And also I was surrounded by other people who had seen what I had seen. It just seemed like a weird, I, I really didn't see of all the things that I thought would happen. That was not one of them. Um, and I actually thought that that response was probably what made it the story it was. And also probably cost Tobman his job, because I think that if they had said, you know, like we're aware of the story uh that sounds very out of character for brandon but we want everyone to feel safe in our clubhouse and so we're investigating and then just you know on november 1st if they had suspended for two weeks i don't think anyone would have ever talked about this again but i think that once it turned into like team versus media and then you know the asterisk had been challenging to deal with for a lot of people anyway and the media loves to be told the media loves a chance to stand up for the media and so i think that then it became, and it was, you know, like sort of Trumpy in this idea that they can tell you that something that you saw didn't actually happen. It turned, it turned into sort of an avatar for a lot of other things. And so I, uh, I, I mean, I truly didn't expect, I thought it was going to be a one day story and it turned into something much larger, I think, because of the way that they tried to handle it by saying like things that you see with your own eyes aren't true. Um, and I actually thought it was sort of a, obviously our job is very different in a lot of ways from, uh, Washington correspondence, but I was impressed with, you know, sports writers get lied to a lot and like every day about stupidest, the stupidest things like, no, he's not injured. No. Y- yes. He did throw that pitch. Just, just utter nonsense all the time. And they expect us to believe it. And so I was sort of, um, fortified, I guess, by the way that the press corps sort of was like, no, actually we won't just be accepting this. You will all have to answer for your poor behavior. And I also thought, and I think it's important to mention it. I mean, it was a story about what Brandon Tobin said, but I also think that it was more, it was a story about the sort of general attitude in the sport toward domestic violence and toward uh, off what what they believe to be off field issues. And this idea that like, you can't, that, that we get, we, the, the teams get to decide what, the consequences are for people and how you feel about something that was done. And so I think that, uh, I mean, Tobin said an incredibly stupid thing, but I don't think he's the only person in the sport who given the opportunity would behave that way. 
And so that was kind of the, and who had behaved that way. I mean, uh, I believe it was Hal Steinbrenner said that about Aroldis Chapman that people would forget. And so I think that that was a point I was trying to make too, that this is, that they, they tell us, the, these people believe they can tell us when to stop feeling bad about this and that I don't believe they can. It felt like that was the intersection of, of maybe three different things, domestic violence um, and uh, this whole sort of alternative facts thing, yeah. which I think was very, very, very much of that moment also. And also just treatment of women in the clubhouse. I mean, it's basically part of a sort of long and proud tradition of women being treated very poorly in the clubhouse. I think Taubman was just sort of the distillation of that. Were there other people in baseball? Are there other people in baseball who think, yeah, it doesn't matter. He can help us win. It's fine. That's that's irrelevant because it was off the field. This came up the other day because I pointed out Kirby Puckett is now playable in MLB The Show. And I'm like, he's a wife abuser. Like we know, we know this, this is not a secret. And, and people are like, why does that matter? And it's, it's almost hard to explain to people who say that why this actually matters. But it was on top of that, then that he was so aggressively, uh, verbally attacking. I wasn't there. You were there. You probably characterize it better than I should. I shouldn't try to do this, but that he came after a reporter very specifically and somebody we all know and really respect and and that I think made us all sort of rally around her as well but that it was that combination of things like he just checked so many boxes that it became enough of a story not there were enough different angles that people just cared if you didn't care about this one thing you cared about the other thing and that gave it and on top of that them just just denying it and then suddenly we were all rallying around you too and that made it so much more of a story. And and I liked, I almost like to keep bringing it up to it's like, don't forget that that stuff is going to happen again. It just will be on the micro side, right? There will be microaggressions towards women in the clubhouse. There will be smaller cases of a player accused of domestic abuse where there's not some, there's not this open conflagration in a clubhouse, but we still need to talk about it. And to me, that's part of the the power of your story and why I like that it in, endures and want to want to keep bringing it up every now and then to say, no, no, this, this matters. And this was a pretty important, this could be an inflection point for our sport if we choose to remember, if we choose to make it so. Yeah. I think part of, part of what's hard is that the Astros in particular, as it, as it related to Osuna felt like they were the aggrieved party because they had made what they thought felt like was a pretty good baseball deal. And they were like, kind of offended as an organization that people around them would say, you know, maybe this isn't worth it from a human side. And so I think that that, I mean, I don't think Brandon Taubman was like cheering for domestic violence. I think that his, that his reaction was more of an us against them thing that he like, like you dared to question other pe- people dared to question the, the might and the smarts of the Astros. And in fact, we are like, look, it was worth it. Look how good we are at baseball. And I think that is an attitude that you see a lot, that all, sort of all sins can be papered over by winning. And I don't pretend that this is easy. I mean, domestic violence experts say you don't want a zero tolerance policy because that leaves you with an angry, unemployed man, often home alone with the person he has been hurting and upon whom, uh, and he is the person upon whom she often is relying for support. So we don't want to say that they should just be kicked out of the game. There's also, of course, you know, a, a process, an, investiga- an investigative process that has to go through. Um, and I also think 
like as a society, we haven't solved this issue. So what are the chances that Major League Baseball is going to be the entity that figures out how to handle domestic violence? However, I think we can definitely be doing a better job than we are and treating it with a little more nuance than we do and seeing it as less of a question of whether the on the field results are more important than how it makes people feel to believe that their organizations chose the on the field results over what they feel to be the right thing. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. So let's continue to pick on the Astros uh, because you're, in your latest story, you wrote about Jose Altuve's throwing woes. You used the term the yips, which I greatly appreciate because also because uh, it is another long tradition of teams denying that a player has the yips when we can all see that he has the yips. And you say specifically the Astros deny that Jose Altuve had the yips. It's like we know what that looks like. And nobody is cheering for the yips. It's almost like this came up. I won't say that organization. It's a long time ago, but it was a prospect. I'm like, I heard he got the thing. And they were like, no, what are you What are you talking about? No, no, no. His elbow's a little. But I'm like, that, that we know what that looks like, right? That is, it's horrible. We all cringe when we see it, but we know it, and in this case, I hadn't seen it myself. A scout had told me this this pitcher. I, you know, I was like, "Why isn't he pitched?" Oh, he got he got the thing. He got the yips. Um, and I pre- I really like the the piece is interesting on Altuve too. But I like that you're you're talking about this because it's and to me the yips are endlessly fascinating. People still argue whether it's mental or physical, and what do you do about it and so where 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 did this come down particularly in terms of Altuve trying to a little different from a position player versus a pitcher but still he's trying to be able to play the field and just throw the ball to first base where is he in that process and what did what did you learn about what he's gone through to try to get rid of the yips that he doesn't actually have yeah the yips I find to be one of the most fascinating topics in sports this is actually my third yips story I get a lot uh, I get laughed at a lot by my yeah, and I, uh, my editor called me the foremost yips expert the That's other day. Outstanding! Uh, you should put that on a business card. Yeah, right. Uh, I wrote about John Lester a couple of years ago. Uh, tried to solve where his came from. Wrote about Daniel Bard last mm. summer, and then uh, Altuve. Now, I, I just think, I guess, I think the yips are one of the most relatable things an athlete can suffer because I have no idea what it's like to make a beautiful throw from second base but I definitely know what it's like to not be able to do something I thought I could do. And so that, uh, that, that to me, I mean, I feel like I get the writing yips sometimes. So I really can understand, you know, you look at the blank cursor and you don't remember what it feels like to know what the words should be. And so I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of laughing at the, the yips are like the worst thing that can happen to an athlete because you don't, you have no idea how to fix it. And the way that I try to explain it to friends who don't follow sports is 
you're pretty good at breathing, right? Now start thinking about breathing. And all of a sudden you don't remember how to breathe. It like, it feels weird. You're, you're, you're inhaling for too long. You're exhaling for too long. You don't know how to do it anymore. And that I think is what it feels like for these guys a lot. They start thinking about it and then they can't remember what it was like not to think about it. So with Altuve, I think it's an interesting case because in the past, when I've written about this, they have mostly been through, they've, they've figured out a way to work around it. So Daniel Bard had largely recovered and Lester hadn't really, but he had also just decided not to throw to first base. And so he, and he was getting away with it. Um, it's very, it's unusual, I think, to catch an athlete at the moment. I mean, he's not quite in the thick of it. We're through the playoffs, but we're not sure if he's out of this yet. And so that I think is a really challenging mental state to be in. And of course, everyone around him adores him. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much that his teammates and his coaches love him. Dusty Baker calls him the true, one of the truest guys ever. And they just, as soon as you get any of these people to talk, start talking about Altuve, you have to sort of set your watch for five minutes because <laughs> the five minutes, they're just, they're just telling you how incredible he is in every way. And uh, so no one in that organization wants to say that he can't do this again. I mean, Baker had a great line to me that he, you know, it was two bad throws. If you haven't made two bad throws, you've never played baseball. Of course it wasn't two bad throws and Dusty knows that, but this is his guy. And so <clears throat> exactly, you know, there were two bad throws in one game at one <laughs> right. point. And, and something that the Astros know, but aren't always comfortable acknowledging is that this started, you know, this, there were deteriorations in the second half. And in fact, it's a different, organizational structure at this point with, you know, James Cook and Dusty Baker having replaced Jeff Luno and AJ Hinch. But the last administration wanted to move Altuve off second base, not because they thought he had the yips, but because they didn't think he was a very good defender at that position. They've stack data had shown them that he doesn't move very well laterally, but he's very good at coming in and going out on balls, which is something that you would want out of an outfielder. And their feeling was that if you can handle center field um, physically, you should be, you know, it's, it's easier in some ways than trying to under, trying to read the ball from either of the corner positions. And they thought that they could, they thought they could put Altuve in center and move everybody else around and have a pretty good team. Eventually the coaching staff convinced them that essentially demoting the heart and soul of your team was probably not going to play well with the rest of the club. And of course, you don't know if he's going to buy in, you don't know if he's going to be any good out there, but this is, Altuve's defense has been a concern to the organization for you know, almost half a decade at this point in the playoffs, anyone who watched any of those games probably remembers that feeling in your stomach when the ball was hit to him. I mean, even it's just, it's just awful to watch Brandon McCarthy who uh, played for the Dodgers in 2017 and has certainly as much reason as anybody to dislike these guys <laughs> that it was just heartbreaking for him to watch Altuve that, you know, somebody said like, how can you not be enjoying this? And he was like, Nobody roots for cancer. This is baseball cancer. You know, like they want, these guys want to watch him strike out. They don't want to watch him unable to make the throw. Um, you know, I went down there. He looks pretty good. He's been on the backfields. He's working with Joe Espada. He worked with Joe Espada for six weeks this winter. Usually they work for three. He, they've really gone through his mechanics. They haven't, they haven't changed that much because part of the problem with the Yips is that he is, eventually something is physically going wrong with the throw or else the throw wouldn't end up where it's ending up, but there's not a real, the, the initial issue is not a physical right. one. So it's not, you can't really fix the mechanics because there's not really anything wrong with the mechanics, but they did work on doing what he's supposed to be doing, putting his body in the right positions, making sure 
that his uh, his momentum is facing where he's trying to throw, that he's got his shoulder lined up, that he's finishing the throws. That was one thing that Espada thought he saw, that he was sort of, he was pulling off the throw a little bit early. And so there's some hope that if he, that if he really makes an effort to finish the throw, that he'll be able to, to put it where he wants to. And, you know, he's looked okay so far. He hasn't had a ton of chances, but he says he feels good. Everybody says that he looks good. And the question will just be, what does that look like once the season starts? Because, you know, John Lester can also make the throws on the backfields and he can make them on, I don't know if he still can, but when they were, when he was in Oakland, they were trying to fix him and they would put him on the mound in Oakland before the game. And he was making all the throws at three o'clock. He just couldn't do it once they played the national anthem. So, you know, we'll see with Altuve. We'll see what it, what it's like when the pressure is on. The hope I think is that he gets off to a quick start that he make you know, the first play is good. And that from there he can build his confidence. Cause I think last year was really hard for these guys. And, you know, of course it's fun to hate the Astros. I get that. And they get it too. But I think that, I think being the villain is maybe not as much fun as we imagine that it would be. And some guys just really aren't cut out to be the villain. And Altuve uh, is, is one of those guys who really isn't, he likes to be loved. He always has been loved. And I think a year of isolation of pandemic of loss and of people telling you that, you know, you're a cheater and they hate you. I think that that starts to wear on a guy like that. Did you forgive me if this was in the article? I don't remember seeing it, but so when I was with the blue Jays, um, we had one or two guys who had it. There were, we had a pretty high draft pick from before I'd gotten there who his name was Chris Sheffield Got it, quit, tried to come back. It it was still there, right? Like, just like you just described. I think he could throw fine on the side. And once it was a game, it was just there again. And it was, he, he then he just ended up quitting again. But I remember the discussion, Harvey Dorfman was still alive at the time. And he argued, he said, this is all mental. This is completely mental. And I asked him, I said, you know, don't a lot of these guys end up needing Tommy John or having other surgery. And his argument was it's mental first, and then they may get hurt trying to somehow pitch around it. But the one thing that was pretty consistent, Harvey believed you could treat guys with this, but the baseball people I was around would say, you can't come back from that. That's it. It's like a baseball death sentence, essentially. Did you run into any of that? I know the Astros were going to say that, but did you hear that from anybody? Because I, I don't know if that's still conventional wisdom, but it was whatever that, God, that's 15 years ago, but it was at the time. Well, I didn't. And honestly, I think, but I think that's part of why no one with the Astros was willing to say, yeah, this was mm-hmm. the Ips, because it is, I think they do still think it's kind of a death sentence. And so if you acknowledge that he might have it, you acknowledge this is a real, this is a really uphill battle. Whereas if you say what they said, which is he made two bad throws when the TVs were on, then you don't have to reckon with whether somebody can come back from something like this. And I think across the sport, you really, you don't, I mean, so many more guys than we think have something yippy about them. (laughs) There are so many relievers who can't make the throw to first and we just don't know because they don't happen very often. You know, there are so many, so many, so many guys who move from the infield to the outfield because suddenly they lose the ability to make that throw. Maybe it happens in the minors. And so it's not that big a deal when a first baseman becomes a corner outfielder. It, you know, that kind of makes sense. But part of that is because it's a different throwing motion. And when you ask them to make a different throwing motion, they can, they can kind of relearn how to do it. And so it's not that they've cured the yips is that they don't have to make that same throw anymore. And, but it's really a secret a lot of the time. I mean, 
it is so as as soon as you go off the record, people are like, oh yeah, you know, we have like somebody said they thought there are two to three guys per team who have some throw there. I believe that. I absolutely would believe that. They just sort of disappear a little bit, or or like you said, they yeah. just don't ask them. Don't hey, just don't make that throw. Don't try to throw to second. Yeah. Right. Or maybe, right. Maybe the shift looks, maybe they play them differently in the yep. shift because for all two, it's the shifted throw mm-hmm. that's really problematic. It's the throw from short right field that he can't right. really make, that he was having so much trouble yep. making. You know, once it's in his head like that, then, then all of the throws are mm-hmm. challenging, but they probably could have avoided this if Altuve hadn't played that deep in the shift. And the, like, if they had figured out that this was going to be that big a problem for him, and if they had just not shifted him out there, we probably never would have known. Because they would have been a little dicey, but he's got a pretty good first baseman in Yuli Gurriel. He'll pick the throw and nobody will ever know. And so I think there are a lot of players like that where they just position them in a way that puts them in a position to succeed. And I think that part of it's, it is amazing to me how many people off the record will acknowledge that they know guys with the it's and how on the record, nobody's ever known anyone except like the six guys you can right. name Glass and Sachs and Knobloch and those guys. Yeah. Nobody else has it because. You, you don't even want to right. say it. If you say it, you might summon yeah, it. It's Voldemort. Yeah. yeah. Or Candyman, right? Wasn't that a Candyman reference yeah. right there? Yes. Right. Yes. Any of those people, they don't like to talk, especially pitchers. That's a bit, I find pitchers especially don't. Yeah. I mean, you even called it the thing and that's, the thing. they do call yeah. it the thing mostly because you don't want to say the word yips. I remember Steve Blast disease. People used to call it Steve Blast disease. I think we've stopped calling it yeah. that because it's kind of mean. That, you know, okay. he was the first guy with the thing that every yeah. that anybody remembers. I'm sure there were also guys before it and they just vanished. But maybe it's he did it yeah. on television or he just did it because he was good beforehand. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the mythology around the yips is endlessly fascinating. And especially it's migration, too, that there are more position players we talk about having it. Whereas it used to be just right. thing pitchers would have. Rick Ankeel. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That's, you know, he was always a little wild, and then this is not a little right. wild, right? This is going from right. you know four walks per nine to forty walks per nine. It's a totally different thing. Well, and it's it becomes something that while you're in it is just it just ruins your life. I mean, Steve Blass, someone wrote to him and suggested that he wear looser underwear, and he tried oh, it. <laughs> I talked to Daniel Bard last year, and he said he was up at night googling how to get rid of the yips. He tried everything. Daniel Bard would try to drink before starts because he read that if that that you know if if, you, if it's harder for you to think, maybe you'll do it right. Like he's he's crushing beers in the yeah. clubhouse before he would come out in in an attempt to do better at his job. He would get massages. He would get acupuncture. He tried hypnosis. They will do anything yep. to try to try to fix this thing, and because it doesn't make sense, you know how to do this. Like I can make that right. throw and I can't do right. anything. <laughs> so it, it's, it's just baffling to these guys. And I think the, the fear is that if you look too hard at it, you will see that you can't come back. And so often the best cure for it. And it, often this truly does work. It's just to pretend it's not happening. My guest today has been Stephanie Epstein. She is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. You can find all three of the articles we talked about and lots more from her on SI.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at Steph, S-T-E-P-H, Epstein, A-P-S-T-E-I-N. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. 
That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or any other site you use where you're able to leave reviews or ratings for podcasts. And please tell a friend. I noticed more of you have been listening lately. I want to say I really appreciate it. Obviously, some of you are are helping spread the word, and uh, it really means a lot to me that you're doing so. Thank you so much. Stay safe, and as soon as you can, go get that vaccine. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.